Well, good morning, and welcome to Daylight Savings Time, where you go to bed on Saturday night and wake up on Monday morning, or so it feels, huh? <laughs> I know I do. It always takes me aback a little bit. It takes me a while to get used to. I love it more on the other side, on fall, when we're, when we're getting up. Or saving an hour, but here, unfortunately, we have to lose an hour and go back to getting up in the dark for another month, right? The keys of the kingdom. What are the keys of the kingdom? To answer that question, we have to begin with the arrival, the advent of the king. Long ago, in a faraway land in ancient Egypt, about 3,700 years ago, an old man lay dying on his bed. And as the custom was in that day, he called his 12 sons to his side to give them a final blessing. You've heard of this man. His name was Jacob, later known as Israel. And as he called each of his 12 sons to offer them a final blessing, he said this when he came to his fourth son, Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. A prophecy of a coming king in the future through the line of Judah. Now, let me stop at this point and say, as you listen to this part of the story, the soundtrack that should be playing in your mind is the introduction to Lord of the Rings. Right now, I couldn't pull that off, so I don't have it playing, but you know what I'm talking about. Dun, 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 dun. Right? Are you with me? 700 years later, another old man, <clears throat> another old man, a seer, the last of the ancient judges of Israel, the first of the prophets, Samuel, called on a man named Jesse and asked to see each of his eight sons. And it wasn't until the eighth son arrived that God said to him, this is the one. This is the future king. And so he anointed him with oil. And some years later, while David was king, God said this to him in 2 Samuel 7:16, "And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." And so for many years thereafter, there were numerous prophecies over time about a coming king, the long-awaited heir to David, the anointed one which in Hebrew is Messiah, and in Greek is Christ, the one and only, came to be known as the one and only king. About 300 years after David, the prophet Isaiah prophesied this. <clears throat> of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom... To establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, Isaiah 9, 7. And then about a hundred years after that, the prophet Daniel said this in Daniel 7, 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And then, after about another 500 years, he finally arrived for the first time. The advent, the arrival of the king. Gabriel announced to Mary, <clears throat> Luke 132, 
that he would be that he was the son of the most high and God would give him the throne of his father David. The angels announced to the shepherds in Luke 2:11 the birth of the Messiah in the city of David. And the magi, the wise men in Matthew 2:2 sought the newborn king of the Jews. Now, some years, a few years into his ministry, the Pharisees challenged him, as they often did, and asked him, when would the kingdom come and what would be the sign of the coming of the kingdom? And in Luke 17, 20 and 21, Jesus said essentially that the kingdom would not arrive in a big and a splashy way, for indeed the kingdom is in your midst, meaning I am here, I'm standing here. The king has arrived. But the people didn't get it. And the Jewish leaders didn't believe he was the one. They didn't understand who he really was. In Matthew 16, 13 to 20, Jesus addressed the various opinions of his true identity. Who do people say that I am? And only one guy got it right, remember? It was Peter, because the Father had revealed to him that he was the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus said this to him. <clears throat> And I tell you, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. Now, as a little aside right here, the Catholic Church has for years used that verse to, as their proof text for the succession of popes. But that's not what this verse is talking about. Protestants, on the other hand, have tried to respond to that by drawing a distinction between the masculine and feminine nature of the nouns. Peter and Petra, right? You are Peter, and on this Petra rock, masculine, feminine. <clears throat> but specifically what Jesus meant here, but, but Jesus would have been speaking Aramaic, so it would, would have been the same term both times, Kepha, masculine or feminine. Really, the masculine-feminine distinction in the Greek text is just good grammar, good Greek grammar. What Jesus is saying here is that I will build my church through men and women starting with you as the first leader of the disciples. But through the leaders of the church, through the church, through the disciples, the followers of Jesus, he would build his church. And then he said something very unusual after that. He said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom. Well, what do you think he meant by that? <clears throat> I bet it was probably a mystery to them at the time. They didn't fully understand if they understood at all what he meant by that. The delegation of authority, the keys of the kingdom, is this a precursor to the Great Commission perhaps? Hold that thought and we're going to circle back in a minute because first I want to talk about the supremacy of the kingdom. A few chapters earlier in Matthew 13, Jesus described the mysteries of the kingdom through a series of parables. And he said in verse 11 to, to his own disciples, he's teaching his disciples at this point, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. So he told a number of parables attempting to describe the nature of the kingdom. And he would say the kingdom is like this, the kingdom is like that, the kingdom is like this, uh, attempting to explain it. <clears throat> so in uh, verses 31 and 32 he says the kingdom is like a mustard seed in a garden. You know, it appears to be the smallest, most insignificant thing there, but at the end of the day, it is the largest, most dominant part of the garden, and even the birds make their nest in that plant. Uh, verse 33, the kingdom is like uh, leaven in flour. Ultimately, it permeates absolutely everything. 
Verse 44, the kingdom is like hidden treasure in a field. A man sold everything and bought that field. Or in verse 45 and 46, the kingdom is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And when he finds one of great value, he sells everything to buy that one pearl. So what are the lessons? What can we learn from these parables? The kingdom of God, though seemingly insignificant now, is in reality destined to dominate the entire world. It seems small and insignificant. However, it is the most dominant thing anywhere in the universe. It's the only thing or the only enduring thing in the universe. The fact is, at the end of the day, it is the universe. True? And so I'd like to present sort of as my observation, as my thesis statement for this morning's uh, message, I believe there are two things occurring simultaneously in our day. Um, we live in a time between the first and the second coming of Christ, right? And so I think there are two, I observe there are two things happening simultaneously. <clears throat> One is the accelerated rise and fall of man's empires and kingdoms. It's been happening for, since time you know, past. However, it seems to have speeded up and accelerated the rise and the fall of men's empires and men's kingdoms. And at the same time, what's going on is the worldwide expansion of the one true kingdom of God. So my question to you is, which one are you a part of? Which one are you living for? Your own empire, your own kingdom, or the one and only, the eternal kingdom of God? You know, today we do live in an overlap of the ages, so to speak. The present evil age still reigns, but we've had a glimpse, a taste of the age to come. The king has arrived, but the fullness is yet to come. We live in something of a gap between times, uh, a gap between the advent and the parousia. Is that an odd term? That's the term for the second coming of Christ, the advent, the first coming of Christ, the parousia, the second coming, the time when Jesus comes returns, sets everything straight, establishes his kingdom, destroys evil and every rival kingdom once and for all, right? In that time period, that gap is what we live in, and it's called the church age, a time when there are more people alive than have ever lived ever on the planet, a time also of the expansion of the eternal kingdom of God. A time when that one true kingdom is extended among all the peoples of the earth in every nation, tribe, everywhere across the globe, isn't it? The king has come. His kingdom has been inaugurated, but the fullness of that kingdom is still to come. First, in the millennial reign, when he comes and reigns on the earth for a thousand years, and then after that in the eternal state. We've had glimpses, we've had foretastes, and so we are told by Jesus himself to pray in the Lord's Prayer, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, just like it is in heaven. And he commanded us to, to make the kingdom our first priority, seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, 33. But for now, for now, the enemy and the rulers of this age are permitted to continue their dominion for a season. For a season, there are many, many rivals to the kingdom of God, many rival kingdoms, many rival empires, and they seem permanent and they seem so dominant that it only seems that way. 
In reality, the kingdom of God is preeminent over absolutely everything. But world history shows us what? It shows us a continued and repetitive rise and fall of man's empires and kingdoms, both on a macro level, countries, and on a micro level, your company, your job, right? And so there's a tension. What are you living for? What are you not living for? What do you think you're living for? Let me give you a few examples here. Um, Last year, Janet and I celebrated our 35th wedding anniversary, and so we took a trip to Paris and London. First time I'd ever been. And uh, after I came back, of course, I had to immerse myself in French and English history because I'd seen so many sites. I've got to know what was was going on there. What's the background? What's the history? You see so many things that we never see in our country because, you know, we, we only go back a few hundred years. They go back several thousand years. So, you know, it's funny. One day I'm standing, and if you want to get a good feel for what it's like to, to be immersed in the, in, in the history of man's past empires and kingdoms, all you've got to do is walk through Windsor Castle or Versailles, right? So if you're in St. George's Hall walking through uh, Windsor Castle, I, I happen to be the only one in the room. There's a massively huge dining hall. And on the walls were these full-size portraits of all the English kings from several hundred years back. It was overwhelming. Several days later, I'm at Versailles, uh, walking through another magnificent hall, seeing these full-size portraits of the French kings. And I thought, who are these people? Who were these people? I know nothing about them. They seem so glorious. Um, Let me tell you a story briefly, though, about three kings. Let me a tale of three kings, really two kings and an emperor, in about a 300-year span between 1509 and about 1814. You know, it's so easy to be overwhelmed by the glory of man and the glory of his kingdom. And yet one day, poof, and it's gone. It crumbles and it's gone forever. And we only remember it in history books or we go and, you know, see the sights, right? Let me tell you about a couple of these guys. You've probably heard of this guy, Henry VIII in England, ruled from 1509 to 1547. Quite a uh, strong-willed king. He's probably the most notorious of the English kings. Married six times. Uh... Three of his wives named Catherine, two named Anne. That's a little creepy. <laughs> two, of them, two of them executed, two of them annulled. And then his sixth wife, well, no, his third wife, but the, uh, the last, the middle of the six, Jane Seymour, Dr. Quinn, medicine woman. No, different Jane Seymour. She's the only one that could give him an heir because these kings, <clears throat> these kings are, are committed to three things, essentially. They want to build their empire, build and establish their empire. They, want to, they expanded their kingdoms through war by invading all the neighboring kingdoms to build their kingdom even larger. And they wanted to leave a legacy through their heirs. And Henry VIII, of course, was no exception. He was the second of the Tudor kings. His father had a tenuous claim to the throne. And then Henry VIII, actually Henry was supposed to be devoted to the ministry, but his older brother Arthur died. And so Henry became Henry VIII and the king. Um, and was constantly at war with his surrounding neighbors and, and highly committed to an heir. But he, you know, his wives would have no sons. He has no son. So finally, Jane Seymour gives him a son, Edward. But poor Edward only lives about six years and dies as a, young, as a youngster, teenager. And thereafter, after, after Henry died, uh, his two daughters reigned. Bloody Mary, you've probably heard of her, and then Elizabeth I, who reigned for quite a long time, but she never married, had no children, so when her reign was over, 
that was the end of the Tudor line and the Tudor kingdom and empire that Henry worked so hard to build ended once and for all. And guess where it went? It went back up the family chain to another family called the Stuarts. You've probably heard of King James. He wrote the Bible. No, he sponsored the English Bible. And that was the end of the Tudor line, and his, uh, his kingdom ended. Now, this guy is a little more interesting to me. Uh, he ruled from 1643 to 1715 in Paris, in France. Louis XIV, Le Roi Soulier. Have you heard of him? Louis XIV. The greatest king, maybe in all of European history, certainly in French history, the longest reigning monarch anywhere in Europe, reigned for 72 years. And he was an absolute monarch. Uh, all, every, all authority rested with him. How'd you, like to, how'd you like to dress like that guy? He looks fairly intimidating, doesn't he, in that, <laughs> in that garb? Now, he took his father's hunting cabin and turned it into the greatest palace in the world. You may have heard of it. It's called Versailles. Um, <clears throat> and, and spent oh, untold millions uh, turning that palace into the most glorious thing I've ever seen that, that still today. It's just unbelievable. And yet, at the same time, the people live in poverty. Here he's committed to his own glory extending his kingdom he's attacking all his surrounding neighbors sound familiar trying to expand the kingdom built up this magnificent palace and yet is having a hard time producing a male heir finally does have a son by a second or third wife um but before the end of his life his own son dies and then his grandson died and so it was not until he had to go all the way down to a five-year-old great-grandson to become louis the 15th and carry on the reign but you may have heard uh, the rest of the story uh, a few years later then louis the 15th's grandson becomes louis the 16th and then a little thing called the french revolution kicked in so less than 75 years from the time of louis the 14th that pressure had been building for a very long time and the extravagance and the wars and the poverty that existed in france finally exploded into the french revolution and they destroyed the Bourbon family. This was his family. Once and for all, and his kingdom ended with his great-great-great-great-grandson and his wife, Marie Antoinette, being executed, along with thousands of other people persecuted in France in the late 1700s as a result of the French Revolution. And so his kingdom came to nothing. And then this guy kind of rose in his place, the guy on the right and the guy in the middle here. You may have heard of him, Napoleon. Napoleon was a Corsican uh, artillery officer as a young man, but was a military genius and rose to become the leader of France after the French Revolution. In 1804, though, he crowned himself emperor of all of France and actually put, placed the crown on his own head. Didn't call himself king, called himself emperor, and then set out to attack all the surrounding neighbors, build his kingdom in the same old story and... Same old story, right? Oh, and also has a hard time having an heir, divorces his longtime wife, Josephine, that you've probably heard of, and marries someone else who finally has a son and the poor child. It was a kind of a wimpy young kid who lived with his maternal grandfather in, uh, in Italy, even though he was given the title King of Rome. The poor child had no life. And you know what happened to Napoleon. Eventually the allies surround him, run him out, and he is exiled and may have been poisoned later when he's exiled in Europe. And so his kingdom comes to an end as well. 
these three guys, and I, you could tell this story over and over and over and over again throughout world history of men and, other, and, and, and even women uh, who, who want to build and establish their empire, their kingdom, extend it everywhere through war and violence and oppression, and then leave a legacy to their heirs, and they're 100% committed to their glory, right? And themselves and the kingdoms of men. I could tell you a 20th century story about the Soviet Union, right? Don't have time to go into that one, but Lenin set up the Soviet state. How long did that last? 72 years. And how about Hitler? Hitler, who is going to establish a thousand-year German Reich. How long did it last? Twelve years, right? Twelve years because, oh, the Allies, he invaded all the surrounding neighbors. <laughs> the Allies came together and shut him down, and he killed himself. And that was the end of his empire, too, wasn't it? You know, man's impulse is to build empires <clears throat> on a both a macro level and a micro level. And contrast that, well, let me say this, and th but they all eventually crumble one way or the other. Man's empires crumble, and man's empires are built on power and strength and war and violence and oppression. Contrast that against uh, the glory of God and God's kingdom, who through Christ was established through humility and weakness and grace and love. Oh, I forgot to say, <laughs> the guy on the left is Julius Caesar. He was Napoleon's, empire, or Napoleon's hero. He wanted to fashion his kingdom after Julius Caesar's kingdom. But we know what happened to him at Tu Brute, and his peers assassinated him in the Roman Senate, right? Um... The empires of men come and go. They come and go and come and go. But the kingdom of God remains. It's the only thing that lasts. It's the only true reality. Now let me illustrate that with a prophecy out of Daniel 2. If you want to you flip over there to Daniel 2. I'm just going to read a few of these verses. And again, this is another king, Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> had a vision, didn't he? A vision of this great image of gold and silver. Um, <clears throat> and bronze and iron, and he didn't understand what he was looking at. And finally, Daniel is brought in to interpret both the dream, to tell the dream, and then interpret the dream. And I'm going to read just a few of the verses in Daniel 2, starting at verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thigh, thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the shaft of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. I'm going to skip down then to verse 44. It's up here on the... And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. 
Now, these are commonly understood, these four kingdoms, to be the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and the Roman empires that all had a big effect on ancient Israel, didn't they? But God said he would establish his permanent kingdom and crush out all others, and it would remain forever. Now, theologians will debate the precise meaning and the timing uh, of these events, but I want you to grasp just one central truth. One simple truth here. The kingdom of God is the final reality, the eternal empire, the supreme power in the universe. But how will it be built? How will it be built? Let's talk about the expanse of the kingdom. Recall that the term kingdom, Basilia in the Greek and Malkuth in the Hebrew, has the exact same meaning. The primary meaning of the word kingdom, when you see it in the scriptures, is the authority and sovereignty of the king, the rule and reign of the king. Now, secondarily, it will relate to a people, a place, and a way of life, but primarily, the word kingdom actually could have been translated, would have been better translated, probably kingship. That is, the authority and the sovereignty of a king. Now, we have a hard time with that, don't we? We haven't had a king in 240 years. We don't like kings in America, do we? No, we decided a long time ago that we believed in popular sovereignty, that the people were sovereign, not the king. And so we threw out our king. And yet, and so maybe, it, maybe, maybe we Americans have a little bit harder time relating to uh, the one and only king. But let's put that in a, in, in a modern vernacular. What are we really talking about here? What we're talking about is leadership, sovereign leadership. And the king, Jesus has sovereign leadership over everything. So let's go back to the keys of the kingdom passage. Let's go back now to Matthew uh, 16, 19. And, and let's, let's go back to where, again, where Jesus is discussing his identity among his own uh, disciples. And he says this. I want to read the whole verse this time. <clears throat> he says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The keys of the kingdom. Well, we know that Jesus holds those keys, don't we? Because he's the one that's going to give them to us, to Peter first and then us beyond. And we know from Revelation 3, 7, Jesus described himself, He who is holy and true holds the key of David. What he opens, no one shuts. And what he shuts, no one opens. So what is the key? What is the key? Well, the key is a symbol of authority. When given to a trusted steward, it's authority over the master's possessions and his household and responsibility with the responsibility to the master. Uh, the metaphor of binding and loosing or locking and unlocking relates to the authority over the storehouse of God's provisions for his people. It relates to uh, bringing people into the kingdom through ministry and preaching and disciple-making. And if we were to uh, look at uh, a familiar parable, uh, parable of the miners over in Luke 19, we would see a story that illustrates that. Um, I'm going to read just a few of these verses here in Luke 19, starting in verse 11. As they heard these things... He, Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. 
He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minds and said to them, Engage in business until I come back. Verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So a nobleman goes into a far country to receive a kingdom and return, and he tells his servants, his followers, while he's gone, engage in business with my resources until I return. What is the business of the king? What is the business of the king? Do business, invest with my resources until I return. And then he comes back, and then there is the accounting. This is really a parable about disciple-making, isn't it? It's the, same, it's the same plot, the same idea as the keys of the kingdom delegated by Jesus to his disciples during what I'm going to call the gap, the time of the expansion of the kingdom until his return, his second return, his parousia. Now, with this framework in mind, let's read the very familiar um, Great Commission at the end of Matthew 28, or 20, yeah, 28, 18 to 20, okay? And I want to focus a little bit uh, on verse 18. We often sort of skip over that one and go straight to 19 and 20. But I'd like, you to, I'd like you to pay particular attention to verse 18 here, where Jesus says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. See, God has given all authority to Jesus as the king and he then has turned around and delegated that authority to his trusted stewards to build his church and expand his kingdom throughout the entire world. Wait, you mean I get to be a part of this? I get to be a part of the greatest enterprise in the history of the world? Jesus is delegating to me a portion of the authority that God gave to him to advance the kingdom of God? That, that is utterly overwhelming why would i waste my life building sandcastles to wash away when i could be a part of the greatest enterprise in the history of the universe the building of the kingdom of god which is people it's people reaching and building people that's what the kingdom of god is about god has delegated his kingly authority to jesus and jesus has delegated to his disciples down through the ages, his authority until his return. To make disciples, to advance the kingdom and the lives of men and women everywhere. To establish God's rule and the rule of his king. <laughs> it's a time of the gathering, so to speak. Uh, the people, the gathering of the people of God. A gathering of the saved ones, the Christ-like ones. And you know, there was a similar movement uh, that occurred Back when David was king, a, a gathering of warriors, a gathering of leaders and of the people around the king when he finally became king. And so I want to close by, by uh, referring to that First Chronicles passage. So I'm going to look at First Chronicles 11 briefly if you want to turn there. I'm going to read a couple of these verses in First Chronicles 11. Okay. And uh, not. <laughs> All right, let's just, let's just move forward. On 1 Chronicles 11 there, Then all Israel... Ah, 
gathered together to Hebron, to Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, even when Saul was king, it was you who led out uh, and brought in Israel. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over my people Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. And then what you have then is the gathering and the identifying of the chiefs and the leaders and the tribes. And there's an interesting verse there. Verse 10 says, uh, and I like this particularly in the NIV, the way it says it, These were the chiefs of David's mighty men. They, together with all Israel, gave his kingship strong support to extend it over the whole land as the Lord had promised. Isn't that a great verse? They came together to lend Jesus' kingship, or excuse me, David's kingship, strong support to extend it over the whole land, just like the Lord had promised. And then the, and then the chapter goes on to describe David's mighty men and all, his, uh, and all their exploits and what they had done to become mighty men. Now, it's a kind of a little sidebar here. I want to I I point you to verse 22 because I really like, I really like this guy. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, among his exploits is that he killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. That's pretty cool, huh? Kind of reminds me of Brian Davis. Okay, the facts were a little different. The facts were a little different. It was an armadillo in a trap on a rainy day. But still, <laughs> I'm sorry, Brian. I just, I just had to get a dig in on you. <laughs> and then over in chapter 12, again, uh, it describes uh, the... <clears throat> The, the 12 tribes and, and how many soldiers and warriors and leaders they had brought together. And I particularly like, uh, well, verse 22. Uh, yeah, day after day, men came to help David until he had a great army like the army of God, the gathering of the warriors of the troops of the people to establish David's kingdom and extend it over the whole land. That's what happened on a micro level. How much more now in our day during the gap? Um, and if you, keep, if you were to keep going, you would see... Uh, as they describe the 12 tribes, there's an interesting little comment in verse 32 about the men of Issachar. I particularly like this. Because there's two things about them that is said that's not mentioned about anybody else. It says this. It says they understood the times and they knew what Israel should do. They understood the times and they knew what Israel should do. And that makes me wonder, do we in our day, our little church, we're just a little church kind of like this tribe of Issachar, do we understand the times? Do we know what the church should be doing? The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. What will you give your life to? Will it be your own empire, the empires of men, or the eternal kingdom of God? Now, see, guys, this is the big job, the grand quest. This is the ultimate purpose. This is the great adventure. There isn't anything better than this. This is the greatest purpose on earth. What will you give your life to? See, we have the privilege in our day to be a part of the universal mission of the church, to give Jesus' kingship strong support and extend it over the whole land as God has promised. Amen, huh? Let's pray. Father, we're overwhelmed by the extent of what you're doing in the world today. It's easy to overlook this. It's easy to get caught up in the the efforts of men, the things that men 
give their lives to and building their own little empires and kingdoms, whether it's a continent or a company or whatever it is, however large or small it is, we men have a tendency to live for their own glory. And even those who call themselves followers of Jesus are so easily caught up in their own little empires. And I pray, Lord, we would set those aside and we would seek first the kingdom of God. And we would live in such a way that we have committed our lives to extending your kingdom throughout the whole world and just reaching the person next door, just investing in another person so that we're faithful. So when you return and ask us what we did with your resources, resources, Lord, we'll be able to say we invested them in other people to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.